Surf Splendor listeners. I'm your host, David Scales. Surf Splendor is an audio podcast featuring conversations about surfing. While it's just an audio podcast, we have a lot of additional show materials like photos and videos. So make sure to visit our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. You can also leave comments about this episode or send us show ideas. We also post a lot of the photos on Instagram and related articles to a given show on Twitter. So catch us there at Surf Splendor. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, be sure to rate the show and leave a comment. The show is free, but you can invest in future episodes by simply sharing this one with a friend. The more listeners, the more shows we'll produce. So keep the ball rolling. This particular episode was made possible by U.S. Blanks. U.S. Blanks is the world's leading supplier of surfboard blanks with the largest selection of rocker templates, customizable options, and blanks designed by an esteemed team of shapers like Rusty Preissendorfer, Eric Arakawa, Dale Velzi, George Downing, and others. Visit usblanks.com to learn more about the only surfboard blank made entirely in the USA. For today's episode of Surf Splendor, I'm bringing you conversations with two legends of our sport. It's part of our Shaper series, but what makes this episode different is that these guys are equally well-known, or, or perhaps even better known, as surfers than they are shapers. I'm talking about Robert August of Endless Summer fame and Charlie Smith of Hollyiva fame. Both of these guys honestly really deserve two hour-long shows each, so it's a shame that I'm lumping them together. But circumstances prevented me from really doing a proper, thorough interview, so I apologize to them both and I apologize to you, the listener. Um, Robert August lives in Costa Rica now, and he was only in California recently for the boardroom show. I was able to steal him for this interview, but he had a lot of other obligations at the show, and so our time was really kind of cut short. Charlie Smith, on the other hand, I recorded um, when I was in Maui, and I was only on the island for a few hours, and it was the same day that I recorded the Tom Parrish interview. I sat down with Tom first, and the interview ran long, which really cut into Charlie's time. I am sure, however, that our paths will cross in the future again, so um, consider this this a teaser, and I'll be sure to get a full hour-long interview with Charlie next time. One last thing. This interview with Robert August was recorded outside of the boardroom show, so that's what all the ambient noise is. Enough of me babbling. Thanks for listening. I'm glad you're here. First up, Robert August. Can you tell me about your father maybe a little bit prior to the endless summer spiel and all that? Like, I know he worked, surfed with Duke. Yeah, okay. Basically, uh, Duke Hanamoko, you know, was a swimmer in Waikiki and somebody observed him swimming, you know, and my God, this guy, I'm not too sure, but this is about as fast as somebody can swim. And there was very limited travel in those days. There were some freighters going back and forth to Waikiki, basically, Honolulu, 
from San Francisco and Long Beach, you know, the L.A. Harbor. Sure. And uh, so somebody saw, you know, and there was surfing going on and these giant planks of wood. And somebody saw Duke swimming and went, my God, that's fast. And got him to come to California to actually swim in a pool and be timed, you know, because there was, there was lifeguards and swimming and water polo preparation for the Olympics. And they talked him into coming. And he did, and he brought like 10 of these giant pieces of wood. So in, in the South Bay, you know, Hermosa Redondo, Manhattan, there was swimming, major competitive swimming and coaching and everything. And he got in the pool and swam and they went, my God, this is true. This is Olympic speed, you know. Yeah. But the local guys, my father was a young kid then, they just went, yeah, you know, we'll try that. And they got in these giant pieces of wood and rode waves. Thought, how fun is that? Hmm. So Duke went back to Hawaii. And then uh, a few years later, the Olympics was in Los Angeles. And he came back, bought some more of these giant pieces of wood, and he killed it in the Olympics. Gold medals, broke records and everything. And then, uh, but my dad surfed and all those guys started then, you know. And then four years later, the Olympics was in Sydney, Australia. And Duke did the same thing. He brought big boards down there. And, you know, the Australians all live at the beach because there's yeah. nothing inland. And uh, so he pretty much, that's how it started. So when he left, did your dad um, try to re obviously recreate the boards here and make his oh, own? Oh, no, my world? dad was a kid. You oh, know. Okay. So and, he just witnessed it. Yeah, and so people started more and more going to Hawaii on these freighters and going to Waikiki, basically, you know, a long flat wave where you could ride this 130-pound piece of wood. Mm -hmm. Pretty difficult in the South Bay, you know, with the dumpy waves. So sure. pretty tough for some lady to catch a wave but yeah. in Waikiki. So Duke and his brothers all became beach boys, you know, when people were getting on these freighters and going over there. Yeah. So that's how the lifestyle started, and that's how the you know the people in the South Bay, you know, by Los Angeles, that's how they all started riding waves. So did you grow up in Seal Beach, or was yeah, it the South Yeah, Seal Beach. Bay? Okay. No, so what was your Seal dad Beach. doing at that time in Seal Beach? Um, let me see. I think he was in. He had an oil refinery. Oh, okay. You know, over in he would he would collect uh, uh, oil from all the gas stations, you know, you change the oil and he would take it and refine it and sell it back to oil companies. Okay. And he was surfing at that sure. time, of course. Oh, yeah. So when you grew up there, what was that like? I mean, it's obviously changed a lot. Oh, sure. But I was six years old and him and a friend of his built a paddleboard for me. That's what they had then, you know. You could go to the, to the lumber yard, the hardware stores, and buy a pattern and mm -hmm. cut out all the wood and glue it and screw it together and make a paddleboard. So that was my first board. Okay. Hollow paddleboard. <laughs> yeah. So, you know. Awesome. Um, let's, for the sake of time, kind of jump ahead a little bit. The endless summer comes along. Obviously, yeah. nobody would expect that to become what it was. But oh, no. what was your life and um, surfing like leading up to that? And then how did that kind of yeah. impact you? Well, there were surf movies before the endless summer and they were lecture films you know bruce and three or four other guys would make a movie once a year drag it around to all the auditoriums high school auditoriums civic auditoriums and uh, there'd be posters on the telephone poles surf movie next week you know so we all went 
And uh, Bruce's movies were always a little better than everybody else's. He studied film a little bit more. Oh, okay. And I was in his movies before the endless summer from when I was like 15. You know, okay. Went to Hawaii, Went to we drove to Florida. And, you know, there's only a few surfers in Florida then. Sure. But anyway, uh, I was good friends. I traveled with him and I was in other people's movies too. I surfed so much, by the time I was 14, I was about as good as anybody just yeah, from sure. repetition, you know. Yeah. But that didn't mean anything back then. There was no careers or anything. But anyway, uh, Bruce called me when I was a senior in high school and asked me, explaining this big trip, you know, he was going to make this incredible journey to South Africa. And in the, uh, my reaction was, no, I'm going to go to the university, you know, I can't mm -hmm. go, you know, I'm kind of focused. And uh, he said, well, stop by the office. He had a off little office in Dana Point. He had a picture of the world, a map of the world on the wall where we were going to go. And I went, oh, my God, we're not just going to go to Cape Town and ride some waves and then come home. So I said, well, I'll talk to my mom and dad and some teachers at school that I respect, you know. Yeah. My mom and dad, from when I was little, we were camping in Baja, California, and we never saw anybody. As far as I know, we pioneered half of Baja, California. Sure. And uh, my mom and dad said, are you crazy? Go. You can always go to school. Nobody gets to do this. That's amazing. And I got the same response from my teachers and the principal at Huntington Beach High School. Amazing. They went, go. You know, this is the best education you could ever get. Yeah. And they were all right. I got back after seven months, my mind had really changed about my whole life and the world and different things. So it's great. Yeah. It's the locations that he chose to surf are interesting because now everything is scouted and you would know oh, yeah. where to go. But I mean, was there any um, idea about the waves in those areas or was it completely brand None. New? No communication. We knew there were some surfers in Cape Town because there had been some phone blanks sent down there and they were trying to learn how to make a board and surf, you know. So that's how we decided on Cape Town. Well, there was no no air travel across the Atlantic Ocean to South Africa. We had to go to Senegal, Ghana, Nigeria, Leopoldville, and the Congo to get there. And we thought, well, it is what it is. You know, you had to wait like a week for the next flight to go to the next country. That ended up being a great part of the movie because we got great surf in Senegal. Yeah. And in, in uh, Ghana is where we surfed with all those little kids, you know, and there was a Peace Corps guy there. It was the, it was the Kennedy years. And this Peace Corps guy there was teaching them how to boil water and stuff, you know. So it was amazing life. And then in Cape Town, you know, we got waves and then we discovered the Cape St. Francis thing. And there was no air travel across the Indian Ocean either. Okay. We knew there was some surf in Australia. And uh, so we had to go to Kenya, to Arabia, to Yemen, to India, to Singapore, and Jakarta to get to Perth, Australia. So we went a lot of places that were not in the movie. Either there was no surf or nothing interesting happened, but for a young guy, what an experience, man. I wonder if that film still exists. I'm sure he recorded some of that, right? Oh, yeah. 
I don't know. You know, there was the editing, and he probably went, eh, ooh, cool. Right. Nah. Yeah. You know, there was probably some weird stuff in there that, you know. But it would have value now oh, to sure. dig that up. Well, he was pretty sure, you know, that this was going to be the best surf movie ever made, just from the scope of it. You know? Sure. Not that it would be an international phenomenon. And crossover success, too. Oh, yeah. So... What we remember most about South Africa is a place we discovered with our friend Terence. On the map, we could see a big cape sticking out seven miles to sea, a point of land called on the map Cape St. Francis. It was about three miles across these sand dunes to the water. We had no idea what was on the other side, but we'd come halfway around the world, so we thought we'd go take a look. We struck off across the sand dunes, led by our friend Terence of Africa. Halfway around the world and halfway across the dunes, it seemed like a bad idea. It started to get pretty hot. The odds were against us finding, sir. We didn't even know if we'd find the water. When you go looking for surf, you don't look for a really big wave. If you found one, you'd never ride it in strange waters. It would be much too dangerous. What every surfer dreams of finding is a small wave with perfect shape, what we call a perfect wave. The odds against finding that are 10 million to one. They finally got their first look at Cape St. Francis, South Africa. can't tell how good a wave is till you actually ride it. On Mike's first ride, the first five seconds, he knew he'd finally found that perfect wave. How did your life change after that? Tremendously. You know, I went, I, I wanted to be a dentist. I was focused and ready to go. Good grades, I was student body president. And uh, when I got back, you know, it was half of the year was gone, and so I just I enrolled at Long Beach State just to get back into the role, the rigmarole of school. That's where I went. And I'm my mind is just wandering, you know. I'm in classes and I'm pre dental, pre med, whatever, and I'm doing okay. But I was thinking more. There's more, yeah. you know. And so I went to see my dentist. He surfed and told him how I was feeling and and. Is, are you happy, you know, being a dentist? And he went, ooh, not really. Think about what I do. I look at the x-ray, I drill out the hole, I make a mixture, it's kind of like resident catalyst. I stick it in there, I let it dry, I sand it, and I polish it. And I hurt them. They don't like going to the dentist. And then I send them a bill, and they don't want to pay me. They'll pay everybody before they pay the dentist, because I can't go repossess that filling. And uh, he says, I basically hate it. I went, oh my God, you know, do I want to go to school for eight years to do something I hate? And he said, I am Where's the, the happiest. Show at? I'm oh. the happiest in my life oh, in a surf side. shop. The other side? Everybody is so happy. They're going somewhere. They're getting a new board. They're getting some new surf shorts, you know. It's just, I could, I could spend forever there. And I went, shouldn't be too hard for me. You know, the movie was in... The movie was in every theater in America then. Yeah. 
So I called Jacobs, who I, you know, was riding his surfboards, and said, "Can I get a job?" And he went, "Are you kidding?" <laughs> so I just became a salesman in the shop. Yeah, absolutely. The dentist was right. I loved it, man. Everybody's yeah. so stoked all day long. I didn't make much money. Yeah. But and then I just went, "This is for me, man. I'm not going to go back to school and do something I hate." Well, and so and then I learned how to shape. You know, there okay. was shapers there, and they were in the back of the shop. So I watched and watched, and man, I just, I had to do it, you know, it just really attracted me. Yeah. So, so um, how did that turn into a career? Well, I loved it, you know, and I couldn't imagine, I was still surfing a lot, you know, competing and everything. The competitions back there were, who cares? You know? Sure. You get third place, get a little trophy and go home. Mm -hmm. There was no career to be had, but it was fun, you know. And, We'd get free travel, I'd go to Hawaii, you know. But uh, shaping was my passion, you know. Hmm. That's what I really wanted to do. So I, I wandered away from the South Bay. You know, the surf wasn't very good, and the crowd was trying, kind of going towards the psychedelic crazy stuff. And So I went back to Huntington and shaped for different people, and finally realized that people were buying all these boards because I was shaping. So I opened my own store and started my own brand. Yeah. And you've obviously um, existed and shaped during a lot of evolution, you know, surfboard evolution. Oh, yeah. I would imagine that what you just said remains true. People are buying the boards because of you and because of the association with the Endless Summer. A lot. Therefore, they're buying a certain style of board. Have you, have your design interest evolved into something different or are you happy kind of satisfying their needs? Or? Well, that's the cool thing about shaping surfboards and being in the business is it's for me and my company, it's not that repetitious because we make everything and we make all kinds of custom things. You have to be able to adjust, you know. There was years where there was no longboards. There was no blank for a longboard. Really? Yeah, and all the boards we made were skinny little single fin you know, 18 inch. and they were hard to ride. We refer to it as the bad board era. They were hard to ride. They were no good. They had a skinny little flat tail with no rocker and a fin right on the end because there was all this influence from Hawaii and hollow waves. But, but did it, it work there? Was it a functional design for that? Well, surfers got better to where they could deal with it, you know, and Lopez and those guys were riding them. Yeah. And it's what I had to make because that's what the public wants. So I shaped thousands of little short boards, and, and to this day, if you're any good at your craft, you should. Somebody tells you what they want, you should be able to go in there and shape it. Sure. You know? So uh, I still enjoy that. I like the variety of it. You know, make all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So um, again, jumping ahead a couple decades. Yeah. Bringing us to Costa Rica. You're living down there now? Yeah. And um, how active are you shaping down there? I shape a board once a week. It's like an exhibition at this resort that I'm uh, involved with, the Witches Rock Surf Camp. Mm -hmm. And uh, people can come in and watch. And I give a lecture about foam. When I was in high school, I worked for Harold Walker, Walker Foam. Mm -hmm. I know how to pour blanks. I know how to cut them and glue them up and change the rocker and, and vary the density of the foam, you know. And so I understand all that. And so I give a little lecture about how that's made, and then I shape a board and make them watch. I explain rocker, I let them feel it, I let them see the lighting, what I'm looking at, what I'm feeling, and I make it interesting. And where does that board end up each week? 
Well, usually it's an order. You know, people can order a board ahead of time. They know they're going to Costa Rica. They can get download the order card, you know, from my company here. Yeah. And, you know, and either they can watch me shape it or when they get there, it's finished with their name on it. They can wax it and paddle out. That's cool. So it's a cool thing. And I Very just do one a week. You know? Very cool. Yeah. Would you like to do more? No. No? no. Done? Well, I still enjoy it, but, you know, uh, if somebody wants to have one, I'll go down there and shape it. Sure. It's not like the law, but... Uh, uh, so who are your boards made by locally then in Southern California? Oh, my factory here in... in uh, it's actually in Westminster. Right. In an industrial area. Mm -hmm. And uh, God, the quality of the boards is unbelievable. You know, because competition's severe these days. And sure. Materials, everything's expensive, so that board better be beautiful. And uh, guys at my factory, it's uh, Aloha Blasting and shapers that are shaping have been with me for 30 years. They're as good as me. They know everything. To learn more about Robert August, and if you'd like to visit him in Costa Rica come to our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com, where we have all of his information. And he was like one of my very best team riders. Really? And, and I didn't have that many local guys on the North Shore as team riders. I had That's Tom Parrish talking about shaping boards for Charlie Smith in episode four of Surf Splendor. With these international guys. So getting a guy like Charlie to ride my boards was um, really, really, really special to me. And um, he's so modest, he's not going to say this, but. He was so unbelievably good. Really? I mean, a lot of people who know would know that. You know, once sure. once in a while somebody will surface that knew him from then and will will remark on how unbelievable he was. Really? But he was like the best guy. You know, Jerry had Pipeline, Barry and Jeff kind of had Sunset. Charlie like dominated Holly Eva for like 15 years. Really? For like 15 years, nobody could touch him. Huh. And Lonnie Akea too, I mean, he, he was, he still is really great, but he was unbelievable as a kid. I think it's a really important feature for a shaper to be an adequate surfer. It's not a necessity, but it's a tremendous asset if you can draw upon that resource. It's hard to dig up information on Charlie. The editor-in-chief of Surfing Magazine is named Charlie Smith. There's a winemaker in Washington named Charlie Smith. Our Charlie Smith isn't much of a self-promoter, so his name is buried deep in the Google searches. He doesn't have a website, he doesn't have any social media presence, but his name is permanently carved into the folklore and oration of the 70s and 80s on the North Shore of Oahu. For those who surfed in Hawaii during those decades, Charlie Smith is synonymous with Haleiwa. I grew up right on the beach in Haleiwa, you know, like right on the beach. I could see Haleiwa break from my, from my room. Really? Yeah. So, you know, and I, I think at the time I didn't know how special it was and how significant, you know, it was. Yeah. Um, 
but in the beginning, you know, I, it wasn't really, surfing wasn't really a big thing there. And because I was on the beach, I, I became involved in surfing as well as many other activities, you know, that you do at the beach. George, my second brother, um, you know, he pretty much introduced me to surfing, I would say. You know, he had a board and kind of got me going. Yeah. And we had a little break right in front of our house that was just perfect for learning. Cool. So, um, you know, it was it was bound to happen. And uh, there were some interesting people that later on I realized were pretty significant people in the surf industry that were, you know, nearby, next door neighbor and and a couple doors down, you know. And uh, they were Peter Cole was right next door to us when I was just a little kid. And uh, Brewer was like two houses away. Really? Yeah. So, you know, what I, rem I remember Peter as being a teacher at Punahou School. And, you know, he had all these big Brewer guns and stood up underneath the how tree, kind of on the border between our houses. And... I remember in the summertime when there was no surf, he'd come home from school and he'd just start swimming out to sea, swim, you know, like a half a mile out. And he'd do this big triangle and come back to the house there. And then Brewer, I remember as being a, I don't know if I even knew he was a shaper at the time, you know? Really? Yeah. He was just a neighbor? Yeah, he was just a neighbor and he, he had a race car, I remember. I think it was a Ranchero. And there was a track up in Kahuku that, um, you know, the local people used to go and have uh, races at. Like drag races? Yeah, drag races, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, those are early memories. So, um, what's your earliest memory of building a board? Mmm. Earliest memory, I think I built a twin fin in the that era when... Uh, I guess Corky Carroll and David Nuevo were riding twin fins. Yeah. Um, I guess it would have been, what would that have been, 1970? No. <laughs> you would know probably. Yeah, 70 maybe. So, of course, I had to build a twin fin, and I glassed it as well. Um, I have a friend who lives in Tahiti now. His name is Randy Vetterly, and he's pretty much the one responsible for getting me to, you know, shape my own boards and kind of influenced me in that direction. And um, I think that first one, I can't even remember where it was shaped, but I know I glassed it in, my parents ran a beach club. Okay. They had a, a cooking facility, like a little kitchen, and I remember glassing it inside that little kitchen stall. Really? Yeah, when people weren't there. And uh, I recall forgetting or I think I mistakenly put surfacing agent in the lamination instead of catalyst. So the, the thing just never went off, never went off. So we spoke to some people and they said, well, maybe if you do a really hot, hot coat and try to massage it in real well, you know, it, it might kick the, um, the lamination off. And uh, it, it did finally harden. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> it had a lot of air in it. Okay. <laughs> it was classic. Here's Tom's memory of Charlie's entry into board building. More than anybody, he would show up at my house and watch his boards get shaped. Really? 
I mean, he would stand there for hours. So he wasn't shaping at the time, but he just had an interest. Um, I think he kind of was kinda in, a, in a little hobby way, but he wasn't really, um, he wasn't doing it as a job and he wasn't really, you know, he, we were young then, you know, I was only in my early 20s. He was still in his teens. Yeah. But um, I remember that I remember remar um, noticing it at the time. I was like, how can a guy that surfs as good as he does spend so much time up here watching basically nothing happen, mm -hmm. you know? And later when I saw how good he makes boards, I now, then it all made sense. I was like, oh, this guy was studying. Hmm. This guy was in training for what he was about to become. I mentioned to Charlie that perhaps not all shapers are excellent surfers. I was curious about how his reputation as one of the greatest surfers ever at Haleiwa factors into his work as a shaper. Well, no, no, I was definitely a surfer before a shaper, you know, and um, what you just said might be true. And I think what, what has been good about it is when you get feedback from a, from a surfer, there's always something lost in the interpretation, unless mm. you know the person very, very well, mm. you know. And if if you can, you know, surf your own boards, um, that's probably the best feedback there is. Yeah. You know, um, I think I've realized over the years that a lot of surfers are not really that educated on surfboard design. You know, yeah. I've often had people tell me I like flat bottoms and then you put a straight edge on their board and it's got a big old concave. Really? So, you know, I see that over and over and over and over again. So, um... Well, I yeah. also, I, I mean, you can speak to this more than I can, but I've noticed in modern day anyways, like working with pro surfers, they go through so many boards, mm -hmm. it makes me wonder how much of a relationship can they really have with that board if they're only riding it two or three times and they're moving yeah. on to the next thing you know i guess there's some something to be said about you know the use of the machine and trying to replicate boards i'm not really a believer that it can be done though you know? yeah i'm not sure i am either because there's too many little variables you know right. there's still so much so many of the steps are done by hand by you know some guy in the glass shop for instance right and then you talk about stringers, every, no, no two pieces of wood are the same. Um, and, you know, I, I have read, that was, it was in Surfer's Journal, and it was actually Kelly Slater who was saying, you know, and he's arguably the greatest surfer of all time. Arguably. And, <laughs> and the guy he gets his boards from is probably arguably the greatest um, machine, you know, computer sure. design guy of all time. And Kelly's comment was, if I order 10 boards that are supposed to be identical, two might work the same. Even in the cutting room, there's room for error, right? Because mm. that's done by a human. So they have to index the board, and then it has to be flipped and re-indexed. And, you know, any little variance there is going to make one board different from the other. And then when you get to the glass shop, there's lap size, um, you know, guy routing and, and setting the fins to a certain angle. Yeah. You know, there's just too many little things that... Um, Even, like you were saying... Fin flex, fin flex, you know? Yeah. I, don't, I don't think every fin flex is the same. Right. You know, there's, there's just too many little things. That, there really is. That can affect performance of a board, you know? And to me, the really 
good servers can make those little adapt yeah adaptions you know they can adopt to a um to a design and some people are way more like that than others yeah. you know i've made a few boards for uh jock sutherland for instance and his deal is he never says anything bad about a board he only finds what's good about it and he'll tell you what what you know what what he likes about it mm. and then there's others who maybe aren't great surfers but they read a lot and they think everything has to be just yeah. just so you know who were some of your influences when you were coming up well this this guy I spoke about Randy Vetterly he kind of taught me I would say how to shape you okay. know like you know here's a template and we this is the nose measurement and the wide point in the tail yeah. and this is how you lay out the template and then you get this saw and you cut it out you know so yeah. you know the step-by-step -step was kind of Randy Vetterly, who's now in Tahiti, and is then he still building boards out there. No, no, no. Um, and his influence was Doug Hout. He came from that Santa Cruz area, and um, so I remember he was bringing Hout boards over. And then there was a bunch of mainland guys from Santa, the Santa Cruz area. So the other boards that I was exposed to from the mainland, um, ironically, Jimmy lives here now. Was Jimmy Lewis? Hmm. There was a guy that. Um, Fred Peterson who brought Jimmy Lewis boards over there to Oahu and stayed with some people I knew in Haleiwa and you know those boards were an influence Tom Keenholz, Mark Angel yeah. um, in the early days Tom obviously was a big influence I, I would say you know my early influences were um, Randy and Tom Keenholz but I really wasn't very accomplished yet, you know. So in the later years when I started getting good at it and I became employed by first um, Lightning Bolt and then Locomotion, probably the biggest influences were, um, I'd have to say, Tom and um, Pat Rawson, you oh, know, right. who I told you I spent some time with um, traveling to Japan to shape and so forth. You know, he was kind of like the head guy at Locomotion, and he was very um, unselfish of, you know, of his no with his knowledge, which was a big help to us, some of the younger guys. I asked Charlie when he officially transitioned into a professional shaper. Started with Locomotion in 83, but I'd done some boards for, uh, for a couple of years for Lightning Bolt okay. previous to that, so I'd have to say 81 maybe. Okay. Yeah. And... And I wasn't very good at the time, really? <laughs> so I have to, I have to say thank you to you know Jack Shipley, who was the owner of um, Lightning Bolt at the time. You know, I mean, you know, he, it wasn't just me. He, he brought on a number of us that were that way, you know. Yeah. Um, and basically allowed us to get some boards on their belt and learn what we were doing. Yeah. You know, it was really, it was really cool. Um. The boards that you, so obviously when you're doing that, you're implementing a design that they have in mind. How has your own design opinions and philosophy changed over the years and evolved, and what do you like? Well, like I said, I'm kind of middle of the road, yeah. Um, back then, I mean, you know, surfers are kind of like fish in a way, you know. If one guy turns left, they all want to turn left. Yeah. So. You, 
you know, as shapers, we, we're always watching out what the other guys are doing, of course, especially the big names, right? And trying to, you know, emulate the ones that you like and avoiding the ones you don't like. Right. So, um, I was on the North Shore. Um, everything was the single fin round pin at the time, hmm. you know. At the lightning With, bolt time, you mean? Yeah, yeah, in the lightning bolt era. And then about the time I was starting up with locomotion, um, the thruster came about, you know, but they still kind of resembled single fins a little bit, you know. The early thrusters still had the beak nose and pretty substantial rail, and basically it was a single fin with three fins on it. Right. With V, you know, concave was not um, being used at the time. So, you know, when when you're young and trying to learn a craft, you're, you're basically trying to emulate the guys that you um, look up to. So in my case, that was Tom and Pat Ross and, yeah. and a couple other guys. I surfed a lot. Uh, Glenn Minami surfed a lot at Haleiwa. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was kind of an influence, maybe, just because he was around a lot. You know? sure. I got, we each got to look at each other's boards. And... Charlie then told me about how Tom Parrish's early influence plays a part in his modern board designs. It's funny. We, I find us find myself using some of the old single fin nose templates again. You know. Really. Yeah, because you know that's what single fins were—were were full nose. Some of the newer Short boards kind of resemble single fin noses almost. Um, that that whole thing, for me, it evolved with um, kind of more or less copying templates of Tom's, you know, or, yeah. or, or taking templates off of Tom's boards, whether he knew it or not. And then when he left, I know he he probably told you about leaving Hawaii for a while. Yeah. Um, I happened to fall into possession of his whole template stack really which we still have he now has oh, them back okay. <laughs> but um so those were all single fins and what i did was i i took those single fin templates and um started creating the thruster templates out of them you know basically by using longer noses from a longer template and tails from a shorter template okay. because that's basically what happened with thrusters right the wide points got moved back so the noses the nose section was longer yeah tail section basically was shorter and curvier so i created a whole set of thruster templates using tom's temp templates and then when he came back a lot of the thruster work that he did you know he was probably using those templates that that i built based off of his right and and then now it almost seems like, you know, some of the, we're using some of the single fin curves again because of the fuller nose idea mm -hmm. coming back. It's funny how things it's been a reciprocal yeah, relationship. come around. Yeah, oh yeah, you know, I think in the catalog for the SP blanket, I think it says something about this being the latest in a long, you know, a long relationship of you know, doing collaborations of one thing or another. Right. And yeah, that's kind of true, you know. I mean, I met Tom when he was building my boards, and then when he came back from um, the mainland after school, uh, he actually 
rode a couple of my boards, so I've made him boards. He's made me, you know, he made me way more boards than I made him, but but he rode a few of them. And then we've done, you know, a few kind of collaboration boards where guys wanted us to both work on them. Really? Yeah. So um, it's always to... interesting. That's kind of what the what the blank ended up being. Yeah. Do you have? Do you still have any of the old boards that he shaped? Yes, for you I, I have a I have a Waimea gun really? under the house. Yeah, it's probably dirty as hell, but it's if you cool. want to take a look at it, it's cool we, just to have. You know? Yeah, yeah, it is. If you'd like to take a look at it, I could pull it out. Do you want? Give Do it a mind? bath. Yeah, I don't mind if you got time. We went and checked out that old Parish Waimea gun. At some point in the '90s, Charlie tried to convert it into a windsurf board by adding a sail to the deck. There's photos of the board on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. Here's Tom's thoughts on his four-decade-long collaboration with Charlie. So we've had a relationship for a long time. We've been friends for, like, going on 40 years now, I think. That's amazing. And, you know, um, at first I was the making his boards and, you know, uh, maybe showing him a few things, but after... After I went through my um, exile and came back, he was he was like miles ahead of me. Really? And he's been kind of showing me, you know, you know, maybe I'm a little bit back up to speed now, but for a long time he was probably considerably far ahead of me. That's awesome. It has been awesome. I mean, it was super nice of him. Yeah. To kind of like let me back in and you know share with me as openly as he has. Well, to give back I mean you shared with him I think so reciprocal yeah it's been a really really great friendship in that way and that's cool. uh, you know now it's like so fun to to work together I mean that's that's a whole nother thing yeah. you know to, to work on your own you know when you're in here doing this stuff you're really isolated mm -hmm. you can easily get isolated from the world but look at it around right you know I have influence every day mm -hmm. every day I have influence from him and he's really active in a whole nother set of circles. So together, I think we're way stronger than we would be separately. I looked all around. One last word from Charlie. It was not written down. If people do want to find your boards, how do they get a hold of you? Um, word of mouth, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> For people watching this video, how do they get a hold of you? <laughs> Um, well, I do have boards in some of the local stores, Locomotion, HIC, and Second Wind. That's pretty much it. Other than that, it's word of mouth. I will always love you. It's worth mentioning that Charlie works as a fireman on Maui where he also lives and shapes boards. I owe a big thanks to U.S. Blanks, who facilitated these interviews. U.S. Blanks is the world's leading supplier of surfboard blanks. Charlie Smith collaborated with Tom Parrish to design their 84SP blank. U.S. Blanks sent me to Maui to interview these guys, so I owe them a thanks for this episode. They also supply Robert August with blanks, for all his boards, and they sponsor the boardroom show, which is where I conducted my interview with Mr. August. 
To learn more about U.S. Blanks, visit usblanks.com and follow them on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at U.S. Blanks. Now I'm not saying we are cut from the same tree. Uh, in closing, Scott Bass and I are attempting to schedule weekly surf news style podcasts. Um, the feedback for those has been really positive, and they take a lot fewer production hours to produce than these normal surf splendor episodes. So look forward to those perhaps once a week. Remember to share this episode with a friend. It's your small investment in the security of future shows. Imagine, if you all share it with one friend this week, our listenership could double. So let's keep it rolling. Follow us on social media at Surf Splendor. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher. Be sure to rate the show, leave a comment. That helps others find the show. Also, feel free to continue the conversation from this episode on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. I'd love to hear your story about Robert August or Charlie Smith. Um, Maybe you own a board that's shaped by them. You can share your photos. Uh, We also posted photos that I took of both Robert and Charlie. So those are posted on the website. We also have an archive of all the music from every episode. But, you know, if you heard some music in this episode that you like, go to our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. The archive is all there. Lastly, we have an internship available. So if you have a passion for surfing and storytelling, visit our website and send in your resume. You can meet all these rad people and be a part of this emerging media platform. That concludes the business portion of the show. Thank you so much for listening to me babble. I'll be back in a few days with Scott Bass and an all-new episode. We will see you then. Thanks.